Welcome to TZ Daily number 72. TZ Daily is a daily chat show with myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts, where we talk about tech, startups, and hacking, and other interesting stuff. Did you see the comments that we got about uh, yesterday's show? Yeah, I did. Um, so they seem like they were largely positive, but um, you know, I think people seem to be looking forward to the Daily Show. Yeah. But there's a couple of interesting um, pieces of feedback. One was that it, it's, it seemed like we rushed a little bit. And that we didn't get into anything in too deep. We kind of felt that as well, didn't we? As we were as we were going through it. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's like we know we have sort of almost like an unlimited amount of time. You know, an hour and a half on the weekend. We're not in any hurry to get through anything. We just talk about what we feel like talking about. But when you know you're going to try and get this thing done in like fifteen twenty minutes, you, it's hard to get that out of your mind that there's the clock is ticking in the back. You know, in the background. So. I think this is going to be like a, a learning curve for us. It is. It is. And I think that somehow we need to get into the frame of mind of thinking we don't have to kind of squeeze things into a short space of time because we can just use tomorrow to kind of discuss the next topic or whatever. Like there's, it, we will ultimately have a lot of time to discuss the topics that we need to discuss, you know? Well, I think also it looks like we'll probably be between. 20 and 30 as opposed to 15 and 20. Yeah, and yeah that was it. Length. The, fif- the 15 and 20 was a little bit ambitious. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I, I think that I can't remember who made the point, but it's probably impossible me, for me to say anything in less than 15 minutes. Right. So with that in mind, maybe we should just go for 30. <laughs> so so. Um, now the, the thing is you, it's, on saying that, you have basically brought three topics um, to the, cause so, so what Ron was suggesting was that we should probably just bring two topics to the show, right? And talk about those two topics, maybe 15 minutes each, 10 minutes each. But you've, mm-hmm. brought, you've brought three topics to today's show and I've got one. Um, yeah, so my, I, I, thought, I think one each is probably, because um, what, what can happen is that you bring up a topic and it just dies. Right. right? It's just, it seems like it's going to be an interesting topic and then it just doesn't go anywhere. Okay. Um, and the second is that, you know, even if it is an interesting topic, you just get through it quickly. And I, I kind of want to have a couple. Like the third is sort of my backup. I think more like uh, one to two topics each. And then I just had a third one in the backup in case um, in case you and I happen to have the same topic or just didn't go anywhere. All right. Well, that works because I've brought one. You've brought three. So I think between us, we've got the we've got the four that hopefully should cover us through. And I mean, don't forget that half of the podcast is when we just kind of go on tangents and just, you know. Right, right, right. Amble in a certain direction. Right. Yeah. Well, um, speaking of uh, meta, because we're we're going getting pretty meta here. Um, my first topic is intellectual hipsters and meta contrarianism. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it's it's from uh, it's on the site lesswrong dot uh, com, which is basically a website for the singularity singularity institute for artificial intelligence. Right. Um. We talked a little bit about that website back when we interviewed Pete Michaud. Yeah. He mentioned that's one of his favorite sites. And basically, the site is focused on rational thinking and using the latest sort of understandings of uh, neuroscience, probability and decision theory, game theory, into helping us become better, more rational thinkers. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, the the topic intellectual hipsters and meta contrarianism was interesting. I thought because it's something I think that happens a lot. We see around us, but we don't necessarily put a name on it 
or really understand that that's going on. So the first, what he means by a hipster is, and I'll sort of read out his description. He says, a hipster is a person who deliberately uses unpopular, obsolete, or obscure styles and preferences in an attempt to be cooler than the mainstream. So, for instance, if, uh, if you have like a, reg- a person who isn't, who's uncool, is kind of just dressed as sort of plain nothing clothes, you know, and then you'd have somebody who's really trendy, is really making an effort and dressing in really uh, expensive uh, name brand clothing. Well, a hipster would kind of revert and go the opposite. They, not only would they wear uncool clothes, but they may wear clothes that's kind of like from a different era. <laughs> or they might wear like a shirt with Mickey Mouse on it or something that's sort of ironic and cute, meaning they're just trying to be, they're trying to make a point that I'm so cool that I can go the other way. Yeah, I'm extra right? specially uncool, which makes me cool. Right. And another good example of that, which I think even illustrates the point more clearly, is so you have people who are, are rich or who are, so they have recently come into money, oftentimes will spend money on buying flashy things to demonstrate that they're not poor, that they have money. Because they don't want to be confused with being poor. So, like, I have, a fan, I have an expensive car, expensive watch, you know, a yacht expensive clothes, whatever. It's, it's what's called signaling. I'm signaling to the people I interact with that I'm rich. That's that the, have, nouveau, the nouveau riche complex. Which can be considered. Now, the people who are nouveau riche or, uh, you know, the new rich, uh, you know, may not be really concerned with that. They're just, because they, they used to, they may have recently been poor, their family was poor, so they're trying to make a statement. They're trying to signal, hey, I'm not poor anymore because that's what they're trying to get away from. That's very mm-hmm. much in their mind. They don't want to be confused with that. And then, but the old money... Um, people who are from generations of money look at the new money as uh, crass, and they call it conspicuous consumption. So, but they don't want to be confused with the new rich. So it's like if I'm from old money and you and I see this person driving around in a Ferrari and wearing an Armani suit, and I'm just like, give me a break. This person is going over the top trying to signal. So I'm going to go the other direction and and not buy expensive things or wear expensive stuff because I don't want. I'm more concerned. I'm not remotely concerned with being being confused with the poor. You know, but I am concerned with being confused with the nouveau riche. Mm-hmm. So they, so it's like a, it, it's a essentially like a full circle thing. So the 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 very rich people, it in some ways are indistinguishable from the very poor people. Sort of, yeah. Except, um, yeah, I guess you could say that on the surface. So, but what would happen is these people are so far away from the original starting point that no one, few people would would make that would confuse the two. Um, and and the thing is, what's in the minds of the people who are, and, and what that is called is called counter signaling. So if I'm signaling that you that I'm rich because I have a Rolex, and then and then you know, so as a nouveau riche, but then someone who's um, from old money is says, look, they don't even wear a watch or they wear some you know thirty dollar watch. They're just saying they are counter signaling. So that's the that's the terminology for it. And you can look at it in a lot of different terms, not just in rich in, in money or something. You can look at it and say one example that he used was sort of global warming. So you have like the the global warming denier, then you have the global warming um, believer, and then you have the global warming skeptic, right? So and it, and what it's about is the people who think they're really who 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 are the overly intelligent, right? So they're trying to differentiate themselves from the from the just intelligent. Like I am smarter than just the smart people, right? right? I can look deeper and think a little more clearly about topics that everybody's just buying into. So you'd say, okay, well, you know, the people who are uneducated go, oh, I don't know about this global warming stuff. You know, they, they don't understand it. And they think it's just a crock from some bunch of scientists that, you know, 
don't know what they're talking about. But then you say, well, the, the, the sort of like the, the normal intel- intelligent people who read and think, oh, you know, we're reading, they read about what the science is quoted on the news or in the newspapers. And they go, oh, yeah, well, you know, it looks like the science supports this. This is something we should be concerned about. And then you say, well, the global warming skeptic, somebody who is skeptic for the reason, not because they have like a corporation that will lose money because of it or because they're affiliated with a political party that its platform is not to believe in it, but they're like, okay, you know what? I don't think the, I've looked at some of the models, the mathematical models, and I'm not convinced. The statistics and the models themselves are not, are not convincing, right? And so that would be another example of like the triad, right? So you have the three, but the one thing that's important to understand is that just because something, there's an order to it doesn't mean that necessarily it's true, that the third one is true, right? Right. It, it, it just means that that's the, the triad. So it's like you can't determine whether global warming is true or not by doing a psychological analysis on, on contrarianism or meta-contrarianism. I've, I've seen um, so, something that I've seen that kind of reminds me of this is um, sort of when you, when you learn a skill. So, for example, when, when I first started to learn to play pool or, you know, like billiards, right? Yep. So you don't know what you're doing, so you kind of you're standing up and you're using the cue and you're standing up straight and you try and hit the ball and you get it all wrong and you're just no yeah. good at it, right? So then the more, the better you get at it, you learn, okay, I've got to really bend down to the table. I've got to really line up with the cue. I've got to look really good. And then you practice and then you spend two years playing it a lot. And then after two years, guess what? You can just kind of stand up again, just the same way you started, but this time you get all the balls in the pocket. So it's like... So if you want to signal to people that you are really awesome... Yeah. Because really it's about signaling. Right. The whole thing is about signaling. You would try and stand up and act like you're not really taking a lot of time to think through the shot. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, I think that, kind of, that, that kind of works with those kind of sports, the sports analogy like that. Yeah. So one thing that's kind of interesting is thinking about like when you are being a contrarian, are you being a contrarian to, to signal? Or are, you, you know, are you trying to sh- demonstrate to people that you're really clever, that you're really smart? Well, are you, why don't are you, you answer that question? Because you're probably one of the biggest contrarians I know. So are you, <laughs> <laughs> are you doing that for the, for the reasons described in this article? I don't know. I, you know. I don't know if I'm such a contrarian. I try to think about that. I think I'm, I'm more of a contrarian. It just happens to be... I'm, I'm a contrarian in some of the things that we've talked about. I don't know if I'm a contrarian in everything. I, I, I was trying to analyze myself and figure that out. But I don't think I'm... I have positions that I'm trying to demonstrate. You're such a, a contrarian. You're even above the issue of analyzing whether you're a contrarian or not. I am, yes. I am. I am so meta. You are old, old contrarian, not nouveau contrarian. That's right. Well, you know what I started thinking about was the – I don't mean to skip uh, – I'll see. I guess I'll try and answer that question. I don't know. I don't think that I am taking positions to signal. I think that I'm just trying to be honest about my thinking on things. I don't think our discussions on you know text editors and source control and languages and all stuff that I'm trying to demonstrate, oh, you know – I'm so smart that I don't have to use the latest, greatest tools, be- or I'm such a great coder, I'm so- I don't have to use the latest and greatest tools because I can outcode you anyway, right. right? I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying I've used these tools, they work for me, and I'm just, in some ways, I'm kind of lazy. I'm, I'm lazy to the point that I'd have to be really convinced that I can see productivity gains that I'm going to make go to the trouble of changing my tool set. Okay. Right. So it's less about signaling, I think, than it's more just about being sort of honest about what I've done or what I use. That said... You know, I'm sure someone can, you know, I, I don't know. But so I just thought one thing that was kind of funny was like, I'll, I'll bring this up to uh, 
just out of sense of humor, I think, is the uh, alien triad. Right. So you'd have, you know, the sort of everyday person be like, oh, yeah, they're totally aliens out there, right? The aliens and they're, they're, they're you know, there's, we, we've been communicating with the aliens and people are abducted and all this kind of stuff. And the educated people will be like, dude, give me a break, right? I mean, that's just silly. It's like talking about ghosts and goblins. You know, there, and, and then the the next one will be like people who actually who are intelligent and spend a lot of time actually looking at, or not a lot of time, but ter- spent some time looking at the uh, evidence. You know, the, the the government documents and stuff like that, and be like, you know what, uh, you know, this stuff is actually compelling. It's worth thinking about. There is actually compelling government documents demonstrating the uh, the military's um, uh, interactions with uh, you know unidentified flying objects. I wonder if you're just saying this to try and manipulate our listeners into thinking that uh, our arguments about alien existence is correct. <laughs> well, look, I'm not arguing one way or the other. I just find it compelling. And I'm also just arguing that if you're really smart, you believe in aliens. That's my point. <laughs> okay, right, right. Only re- no, no, really no, smart no. people believe in aliens. <laughs> only really smart people. Okay, so uh, I, I, let's move on to the next topic. Um, so have you heard of the Cascadia subduction zone? No. It is... Uh, do you know what a subduction zone is? I do not. Okay. So a subduction zone is the process... No, no, if, I, if, I was signaling, if I was trying to signal how smart I was, I would say I had. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a subduction zone is the process that takes place at convergent boundaries by which one tectonic plate moves over another tectonic plate. So there is a, a huge subduction zone that stretches from northern Vancouver Island to northern California, down the west coast. Right. And what's interesting is... Um, my my mum brought my attention about this, but it's just very interesting. It's on Wikipedia, and they think that there is a 37% risk or more that there'll be a, an earthquake of nine or higher on the Richter scale within the next 50 years, which right. is kind of interesting because, um, I mean, if that happened, I mean, it's it's very close to where we are, but also if that happened, I mean, it's a large part of the West Coast. And I, I guess I just wanted to bring up the question, like, what do you think about something like that? Have you considered that? Do you have a plan for if something like that happened? I mean, 37% risk of, of something way, way, way worse than Katrina happening where we are within 50 years. What do you think? Well, so the normal person would have no plan because they've never heard of it. The right. really intelligent person would have thought about it, considered it, and probably be thinking of a plan. But the super brilliant hipster <laughs> would say look it doesn't matter anyway <laughs> you know there's nothing you can do about it and, uh, i don't know i i don't know i mean that's that's uh that is an interesting thing i've never heard about it so i don't have a plan um but uh you know the, Cas- the cascadia mountain range kind of runs up and down the west coast right it's a mountain yeah. range that kind of runs from southern california all the way up to through washington or even uh up through canada right right am i right about that yeah i think so yeah Okay, so um, and they're saying a subduction zone is just is just in line. I guess because a lot of times mountain ranges are sort of in line with um, fault lines, right? Well, so so this is more than just like a. I mean, uh, the, the impression that I get from the the Wikipedia, by the way, anyone want to want to learn about this, just Google Cascadia subduction zone, and um, essentially what what the article says is that if if this earthquake happens, it's going to be kind of down the whole subduction zone right well how long is it how many miles like the whole coast 
that like really like hundreds of miles yeah, like all like, like not a, just like and it's not just there gonna be earthquakes in different points but like it's gonna be one massive earthquake it, all of them down yeah exactly the whole subduction zone will will move because it, it will kind of slide the whole way along it and with with like a a richter scale of nine plus <laughs> well i i guess i guess <laughs> you need we, to take we haven't advice. even seen right <laughs> i guess what that means is you need to take some uh some business planning advice from lex luther you know, remember the very first superman right yeah he was he was his plan was to send a couple of nuclear missiles into the fault lines and he bought up all this properties sort of in was it nevada okay or mexico <laughs> so i think that's the plan is say okay <laughs> where is it going to fall to the sea and i'm just going to buy all this land that'll be the new coast i mean do you think like, the government could cope with that? i mean do you think that uh, just i mean if you think about it katrina is pretty small right and the the way that that was dealt with the way that all those people were displaced from their homes the way it took it's it's not even kind of uh, set back to rights now if something like this happened i mean i'm thinking that it could potentially mean you know issues like food shortages and things like that for the for the whole west coast sure well you know look i mean anybody who's waiting for the government or depending on the government to save them when something like this happens is probably going to be sorely disappointed i mean katrina is just a, a recent example right. <laughs> so uh, thinking that the government has a plan that they're going to do something about it is i don't know i think that's wishful thinking at best um I just wonder when they say that there's a 37% chance, is that what you said, of this happening within the next 50 years? Yeah. I mean, where does that number come from? How do they arrive at a number like that? I well, wonder. That's a, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, I, I, I mean, wonder because that too. Our, is, is earthquake modeling like as complicated uh, and as hard to hard to model as say wet modeling of weather, which is incredibly complex. Even they have these massive supercomputers that try and do it, and they're still not that accurate. Well, I mean, uh, it's definitely not my area of expertise. I wouldn't know. And and actually, they, generally speaking, they have a lower risk. They sort of say it's like the 10%, but there was a recent study that said it was 37%. But what interests me is that this kind of thing is out there and no one talks about it. No one discusses it. Like, you, you, this is the first you've heard of it, right? This is the first, first I've, heard, I've heard of it too. And it's, it's not something that's new. It's been, I mean, and there's a, there's a few kind of little things like this. So it's interesting. Well, did, they, did they model what would be the fallout? Did they get any specific about it? No, the article, the article doesn't really talk about that. It just talks about the facts of, of this subduction zone. That's it. It just says it's going to be really bad. <laughs> well, no, the, the article doesn't... I mean, that's, that's only like a little sub... Like a sub note of the article. I mean, the rest of the article is just explaining what it is, you know, how it formed and, and that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, it's something that concerns me, that's concerned me more than... Or that would concern me more than this i mean this obviously could be very bad but something that i don't think there's a 37 percent chance of happening it's more like you know it's gonna happen which is um peak oil which is that the ultimate you know uh we've sort of hit our limit in the amount of oil that we can extract i see at time and that it will sort of undulate in a plateau and it's going to continue going down to the point where uh, we just can't get enough oil out of the ground to support a growing economy and what ends up happening is that um you know a lot of uh, capitalist societies, capitalist countries, the world, essentially the world economy is built upon this concept of growth. So if you have, and growth requires energy production. So if you, in the way they've sort of tried to predict, you know, how much energy, how much, how much oil is going to be produced is sort of just predicting and how much is needed based on growth. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, whether it's growth in the U.S. or in Europe or China or India or wherever, and but at some point, if you don't have enough um, energy to fuel the growth, and then there can't be growth. In which case, you're in a permanent recession, and then you keep going backwards. And if you don't have some kind of technology to create a new type of energy or replacement energy, then you're in a whole world of hurt because it's not just oh gee, you know, gas is really expensive. It's like all of these things that are in our world that we depend on, all these things that are plastics, everything that's plastic, which is pretty much everything nowadays in the modern world, Medi- you know, all the pharmaceuticals and all our fertilizers and everything is, is built on top of a petroleum uh, industry, right? Mm. And that's going to happen. And I've, I'd never heard about, I had never heard about peak oil until about 2003, 2002, and Mark, um, our buddy Mark, uh, brought it up to me and I did some research on it. It was like, holy crap, this is so bad. And it was so bad. It's, it's such a depressing reality and there's so much um, science behind it that you're just like, why is nobody talking about this? So it definitely is going to happen. I, you know, I mean, look, what's happened is that now it, it, it seems that we may have actually already peaked in 2008. And see, the problem is, is that there's not a whole lot of visibility into oil reserves and oil production rates because a lot of countries like OPEC nations don't um, – they, so, okay, so here's what happens, right? You, you, to figure out, like, well, what's, the, what's our oil production capacity given time? You depend on these countries to say, well, these are our oil fields. These are, it is for individual oil fields that consist of oil wells. What's the production capacity of, any, of those based on what the flow rate is out of those individual wells and, therefore, the, um, the uh, oil fields, but also what, what new oil, oil fields are coming online, right? Now, then, and once you, once you have countries giving you reasonable numbers on that kind of stuff, then you can make some kind of predictions, you know, look at what do we have, what's coming online this year, mm-hmm. in addition to what's coming off and out in deep sea drilling. The problem is that when OPEC was formed, um, you know, it's basically put quotas on how much all of these individual uh, members of OPEC could produce, and it was based on how much they were already producing. So if, you, if you're making a lot of money from oil, and this is back in the, I think, 70s when this happened, and you, you're going to overstate your uh, your flow rates, your production rates, because otherwise you're going to be limited to like that's that's how all you can produce relative to the other nations. So, so like all these countries, yeah, all these countries really overstated their production rates, and so there's being all this cheating. So, and that's what happens a lot of times when you get these kind of agreements. Is companies agree that we're going to limit our supply to keep prices up, but then individual countries start cheating because they want to make money. They need money in the short run. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, because of things like that, you don't have a whole lot of visibility. And then, of course, you have things like, well, how long does it take to bring oil fields online and, uh, you know, all this deep sea stuff? People say, oh, we'll just drill out the sea. It's like, well, sometimes but it takes it, 10 years to bring oil. Okay, oil. so if, if, this, if peak oil uh, happens and then it has, an, you know, an impact on economy, is that something that we see quickly or is that something that's like a tapering thing that takes kind of 20 years to come into effect? Yeah, well, that's that's what's interesting. I mean, I've read a lot about this over the years, and sometimes, and essentially, what happens. I mean, it's it's, 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 it's you, basically you're going about predictions, right? I mean, mm-hmm. what people think is going to happen, what people think is going to happen, what ha- ends up happening is hard is not always the same thing because it's really complicated, right? Because if if oil starts to drop off, like we may have already peaked in 2008, but because of a global recession, it may not have been really visible to everyone because demand was already down because you know there's just not as much uh, um, economic activity. Yeah. 
But if economic activity starts to pick up over the next couple of years and, uh, and production cannot increase beyond where it was like 87 million barrels a day or something like it, which it seemed to have peaked right around that number in 2008, then all of a sudden you're going to start to see um, constraint in supply and that could affect prices. And when prices start to grow, go up, then it starts to affect prices of all other things that are dependent on it, which is like most everything. And, you know, that's even not the worst thing. What's the worst thing is when people, when, when investors and when the economy start to understand that growth is going to be constrained, then people don't want to deploy capital anymore because there is no more growth, right? It's, 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 it's not only a zero-sum game, it's a shrinking zero-sum game. It's almost like if that happened, the internet could essentially, the internet and digital goods and uh, digital um, economy could kind of become its own thing and take on its own path because it's like you don't apart from the energy consumption there's mm-hmm. there's so many aspects of the internet economy that don't really need to actually interact with the real world I think ultimately everything's built on I mean we're sort of in this virtual reality of the internet like people are paying for these web stuff but in the end that stuff's ultimately built everything else is built built on real world stuff like food and transportation and clothing and everything and when all of a sudden all those things you know, I, I I don't I don't think it's resilient to that. I don't think there's what they call a decoupling. You know, they're talking about like mm, you know yeah, decoupling, China yeah. has decoupling. I don't think the web is going to decouple from the rest of the economy. I, I think every, it's all integrated. So you know, but anyway, I, you know, I'm not an expert on it. I've just read a bunch about it over the years. I found it fascinating and kind of depressing at the same time. So I, I don't think about it a whole lot. Like I'll I'll get fascinated by it. And I'll read about it for you know, a few days and I'll, I'll print out all these articles and then I'll be like, all right, I can't think about this anymore. This is just sucks. <laughs> it's like, there's nothing good to think about it. Cause you know, there's all these, there's, you know, this guy, this physicist out of Caltech who wrote a book on, I mean, there's a ton of books on peak oil and it, it for a while, long time, it sounded kind of, it was kind of this fringy thing. I mean, it was, the whole thing was started by um, Hubbard. I think he was a shell geophysicist who, who, who first brought up the concept in, in, two, in the fifties. And he just, and he predicted that the U S was going to peak in 1970 which is basically when it peaked within a year or two of that. Because mm-hmm. you could say, you could talk about when an individual oil well will peak because essentially what happens is when the uh, production reaches a maximum point and after that, it's harder and harder to get the oil out. So you start having to, to push water or, 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 or gas of some kind down there to push the oil out. But it gets, you're expending more and more energy to get the oil out and the oil that's coming out is at a lower and lower flow rate and a lower and lower quality because it's, 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 you know, it's, it's watery, it's more sulfurs in it, that kind of stuff, right? Well, you can extrapolate from a single oil well to a single oil field to you know an entire country to the entire world it's just you know a way of aggregating all those numbers and so um this guy uh, hubbard you know came and he and he was kind of laughed at because you know there was so much oil at the time people are just like that's ridiculous there's oil everywhere and you know there's infinite supply for generations but then that turned out not to be the case and um it and, and then people there's been a number of you know um Experts in the and the in geophysicists in the in, in the uh, in the field who are warning that this is this is real and that they're not exactly sure when it's going to peak whether it was two thousand five or two thousand ten or two thousand twenty or two thousand thirty but you know it was going to happen at some point. I think that's uh, we've we've just we're just uh, coming up to the thirty minutes there so I think that's wow that was fast yep went by fast wow. Um, well, what we should do though is we'll we'll, we'll try and invite someone who's a, who's an expert in it who can actually talk from a position of real research. That's not. A, I think that's a very good idea. I'd, I'd, I'd really like to get someone who knows about the the kind of uh, Cascadian subduction zone on as well. That kind of thing, right. like what those those kind of threats, like how kind of serious are they? Right. Right. 
Huh. Well, you know what? I w- let's just do one more quick topic, just to, just to end on a high note. Uh, you know what? I don't think we should. Like, Maybe we just cap it? Because, 30 minutes? You, well, because look, I mean, that, that, this is what we're trying to do. You know, we need to learn how to do this. If, if we just give ourselves access to the, to the drugs of being able to do more topics and extend the time out, we're never actually going to learn. Fair enough. <laughs> do you know fair. what I mean? Okay, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. All right, we'll just pick it up tomorrow then. Yep. All right, that's a wrap. We're out.